Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. Many, many people are focused on losing weight at this time of the year. Just when you're totally sick of the Christmas commercials, suddenly your TV is filled with ads for weight loss programs and gym memberships with the whole new year, new you mentality. What you may not realize is how much harm going on diet after diet can cause. So today, I wanted to bring in a non-diet dietitian who works with PCOS clients. Sam Abbott is a registered dietitian nutritionist who helps those with PCOS ditch diets, improve insulin resistance, and balance hormones without feeling guilty or stressed about food. She is passionate about empowering people with PCOS to find peace and balance with nutrition, hormones, body, and life. She is also the creator of the PCOS Food Freedom Program, which is a complete program for improving hormone balance without a side of diet culture or weight stigma. You can find Sam on Instagram at PCOS.nutritionist, where she gives free tips and support around PCOS nutrition education. We have a great discussion on intuitive eating, health at every size, and why weight cycling is dangerous. So let's dive in. Hello, welcome, Sam. I am so excited and grateful to have you here. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. My name is Sam Abbott, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. I specialize in nutrition coaching for PCOS, really taking a non-diet approach. Awesome. I think it's kind of funny. I think a lot of people don't realize that those of us who are RDs in the PCOS niche, you know, we all know each other. The vast majority of us are friendly with each other. (laughs) Yeah. For the most part, you know, there's a few, but no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. I would always rather share content from other credentialed RDs who I know I can trust their information, you know, with my audience 
um, rather than just sharing, you know, the other random stuff that they might come across online for sure. So you, like me, work exclusively with PCOS. um, And also like me, you don't have PCOS yourself, but you do have a personal connection with a condition. So can you talk about what first got you interested in working with PCOS? Yes. So PCOS runs in my family. Uh, My sister has PCOS. I have a cousin who has PCOS. But interestingly enough, it was actually my professional experience having a private practice, a brick and mortar private practice, seeing clients for nutrition coaching that really got me interested in the area because I saw that I just kept getting client after client after client who had received a diagnosis and their doctor had told them like, you really need to lose weight or you're going to have all these health issues or you're never going to be able to get pregnant. And truthfully, I didn't really know a lot about PCOS at the time. I recognized the name because I knew my sister had been diagnosed with it, but I just became really interested in the area and then got involved in PCOS advocacy and tried to get involved in organizations that provided updated information on ongoing PCOS research. And it just made me realize how underserved this client population is. So um, once I said on my website that I specialized in PCOS, my brick and mortar practice in Charlotte just completely blew up. And it really just shows you how much of a need there is for more credible evidence-based information. And um, I had to close my brick and mortar practice at the beginning of the pandemic. And it kind of ended up being a blessing because I was able to serve more people online. Yeah, absolutely. I also used to have a brick and mortar uh, the first two years of my practice. And, you know, but I had also always built my practice to be virtual and I was finding, you know, even when I was in person, a lot of my in-person clients preferred meeting with me virtually because it was like, you know, they didn't have to take too much time off of work for an appointment. They didn't have to find and pay for parking downtown and all of that. So um, definitely some benefits to going virtual. Yes, completely agree with you. I live in Charlotte and my office was right outside of downtown and the traffic was insane. So I think so many people were happy to switch to virtual appointments. Yeah, I actually prefer virtual appointments. Same, same. I'm an introvert (laughs) and I just, you know, I feel like it's easier to have control over your schedule when you are virtual. So it's been, it's been great. And it's just like, you know, I think everybody and over over the past year, people have gotten really used to the idea of telehealth. And I think, you know, it just makes healthcare more accessible for more people. Yes, 100%. Something that happened almost immediately when I switched to virtual Um, especially because at the time I was accepting insurance, which previously did not cover telehealth. I started getting a lot of clients who lived in rural areas in North Carolina where they didn't even have access to a dietitian. So telehealth is really amazing from that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I know North Carolina is a a lot larger of a state than New Hampshire is, (laughs) but 
I end up being licensed in three states and I'm probably going to pick up a fourth now that I'm on the other side of the state just because, you know, I drive 10 minutes in one direction and I'm in a totally different state. So, you know, radius wise, anyone within a hundred mile radius can come from four possible states for me. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I know you mentioned that you approach PCOS from a non-diet approach. Um, Specifically, you use intuitive eating in most of your programs. Is that correct? My programs are primarily focused on one of the principles of intuitive eating, the gentle nutrition principle, but I definitely try to weave in the other intuitive eating principles when they're appropriate. Yeah. So tell, tell the audience a little bit about what intuitive eating is. Yeah, definitely. So intuitive eating is a non-diet approach to eating that helps you shift your mindset around food and nutrition from being really centered around weight and weight loss and instead focus on overall well-being. Um, I like to think of intuitive eating as blending your mind knowledge and your body knowledge. So body knowledge being things that you know about yourself, um, your food preferences, your lifestyle, your cooking skills, the types of foods that satisfy you, and then combining those things with your quote unquote mind knowledge or the knowledge that you have about nutrition and honoring your physical health. Um, Intuitive eating was actually created by two registered dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And they actually have a book called Intuitive Eating, if anyone wants to read through all of the principles. Yeah, it's it's really great. I think, you know, there might be this misperception out there that if you are dealing with a chronic condition like PCOS or diabetes or something else where you know, your healthcare team is telling you that nutrition makes a difference. You know, there's this misperception that intuitive eating might not work. Um, But I think, you know, what you're saying is that 10th principle, um, the principle of gentle nutrition, you know, really can be used even when dealing with a chronic condition. Is that correct? Yes, 100%. I like to think of intuitive eating with a medical condition, kind of like a radio with two dials. So one dial for mind knowledge and one dial for body knowledge. And we can move those dials up and down. And with a medical condition, sometimes we may need to dial up that nutrition education. Um, But it doesn't mean we're turning off the other dial either. And um, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I think there are so many misconceptions about what intuitive eating is. And I think people hear the name and they think it's all about only trusting your intuition or only listening to hunger and fullness. And I know it's become very popular on social media and a lot of times dietitians who are just working with the general population are really focused on the the food freedom aspect of it's okay to have sweets. Don't feel guilty about eating the cookie. So I can totally see when you see posts like that, you think, okay, well, I have PCOS. Like, you know, if I just eat cookies all day, that's going to be really horrible for 
you know, my symptoms and actually something that Evelyn Triboli said, I can't remember if she said it in the intuitive eating training or during a workshop, but she said, you know, if you ever hear someone say, I can't practice intuitive eating because I would just eat pizza and cupcakes all day. That's probably an indicator that they don't have like a full understanding of what intuitive eating is, because you can definitely incorporate um, general nutrition and nutrition principles into that. I can give you a few examples if that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about dairy. So uh, <laughs> like a, a, a diety mindset may be, you know, I saw an influencer on Instagram saying I should cut out dairy. And so I'm going to do that. But then you have no insight into whether that actually helped you improve your symptoms. You're not really sure why you're doing it. Um, that's something common that we see, or maybe you're only weighing yourself. And if you're not losing weight, then that's the only metric you're paying attention to with intuitive eating. Let's say you eliminated dairy because it really upset your stomach. That is an example of intuitive eating, even though you eliminated a food, uh, because you're honoring the way that you feel and you're honoring your physical health, because if you're having chronic diarrhea every time you drink milk by making a food substitution there, you know, that could be honoring your gut health, which we know is super important to PCOS. Yeah. I love how you were talking about the two dials between mind knowledge and body knowledge and how having a chronic condition, um, or medical needs can make you kind of turn the dial more towards the mind nutrition to, you know, maybe override the fact that, you know, you do have this chronic condition you're dealing with. I know like one example of that would be, especially on a stressful day. I, you know, being raised Italian, I just want to come home and have a bowl of pasta. I just want to, you know, bury my face in a bowl of carbs after a stressful day. But the, the rational part of me knows I'm going to feel like poop after mm -hmm. I eat just a bowl of pasta. I'm going to be shaky. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be grumpy. So like that mind part of me is, is what knows, okay, if I add some shrimp to this for protein and I maybe add some frozen broccoli to the cooking water before the pasta is done, then I'm going to get some fiber and some vegetables and I'm going to feel better after I eat that meal. So I think you know, the way that you frame it, that it's, it's still always their choice, how yeah, they totally. want to feel. And even that, you know, deciding whether you want to turn that dial more to the mind nutrition aspect of it and do those things, add the extra things to make it a more balanced meal. It really depends on what your goals are and what your, you know, Maybe, maybe you're okay with feeling like crap. I know I sometimes eat cheese and I'm okay with feeling, you know, suffering the consequences of eating cheese for me. Yes. Because um, it's worth it in the moment. But, you know, exactly. More times than not, I, I choose not to eat the cheese. But so that is exactly what intuitive eating is it's all about being able to take ownership over your food choices and you have autonomy over your food choices. And the cool part about that is let's say you had a day where you were like, I am having like a 
big old bowl of pasta and I'm not adding anything to it. And this is how I want it. And I know that I may not feel the best afterwards, but that's completely okay. If you feel good about that decision and it's not, you know, you don't have a moral value assigned to food and you're not going to leave that situation feeling guilty or ashamed, then you just keep going and move on. And I think that when you're stuck in a really diety mentality, making a decision like that can like make or break your progress with nutrition. Yeah. I always would tell clients, um, I would rather have you eat a cookie and feel freaking fantastic about it (laughs) than to be eating kale because you think you're supposed to and like crying, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, that food is an emotional experience. Satisfaction plays a big role in how we feel after we eat. And if we're not considering those things when we make food choices, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. I see that a lot in the PCOS population, especially, you know, because binge eating disorder is so much more common in PCOS. But I see a lot of folks really struggling with, you know, maybe trying to eat too clean. And first of all, like the word clean is problematic, which it's clean in quotes. Um, But if you're eating like a really bland, plain, diety, kind of perfectly balanced plate, like those, I guarantee are going to be the nights when I'm like, hey, do we have ice cream in the freezer? (laughs) Right. Exactly. If you don't get the satisfaction factor from your meals, you're going to keep looking for it elsewhere until you get it, you know? Exactly. And, you know, not every single meal is going to blow our socks off, but in general, when we look at the big picture, we should be thinking about, okay, what do I want to eat? What am I craving? What type of texture am I looking for at this meal? And that should really play into our food choices. Yeah, absolutely. Lately, it's been really cold here in the morning, so I've been all about warm breakfasts, which, you know, definitely doesn't come into play as much during warmer months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And our food tastes, they change throughout seasons of life, figuratively and literally. <laughs> so I think that's something that we should really normalize and even embrace. Yeah, you brought up a really good point too about the lack of nuance on social media. And I think, you know, especially if you're if you're following a lot of accounts in the intuitive eating space on social media, it can come across as very like, I eat pizza all day or I eat, you know, desserts every day. Um, and it's you know, it's hard to convey the the full picture of what it is in 2,200 characters and an image. And I think it's, you know, your account is really great because you're, you are highlighting these gentle nutrition changes that people can imp- incorporate if they choose to with PCOS. So you really are giving, like providing that nutrition information, but in a very gentle way. Yeah, definitely. And people tell me when they come into my program that they're really surprised at how in-depth the the nutrition education is in the program. 
And I do think nutrition is really important, but I think that nutrition knowledge can either be really powerful or really harmful, just depending on where someone is with their nutrition journey. So I do try to be especially gentle online because I'm not there to explain all of the nuances, you know, on an individualized basis, like I am in my program, but yeah. And I think too, a lot of the intuitive eating accounts are speaking to people who maybe they're in eating disorder recovery, or maybe they're really, really struggling with their relationship with food. And if that's the case, that messaging is really appropriate. Even if you have PCOS, you know, if you're coming from that place, you may need to be in a space where you're just letting yourself enjoy all foods and the nutrition education side of things really doesn't need to be prioritized. And then once you get over that hump, then we can bring in some more nutrition principles. So it's really variable and depends on each person. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to emphasize is that people are in different places in their journey. Some people are still very locked in that diet mindset kind of space. Others, you know, may be coming out of it, maybe in active uh, recovery from eating disorders. And then others may be sort of years or decades past all of that and ready to start you know, eating in a way that works for them in terms of making them feel the best. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And everybody is going to have a different definition of like what feels the best because we have physical health and we have mental health and we have emotional health. And I think all of those need to be considered when we're thinking about how food makes us feel. Yeah, absolutely. I always try to be very cautious of that with my programs because I'm not an eating disorder dietitian. And so, you know, if somebody is sort of asking me about information in my, in my programs or whether they should take it, I always encourage them to, you know, discuss it over with their treatment team about maybe what types of social media accounts they should be following, um, what types of books they should be reading, um, you know, ultimately it really is up to the person to manage their triggers and social media is a big trigger. You know? Yes, 100%. And, you know, even outside of the scope of nutrition and PCOS, just in general, looking at the type of content that we're consuming and how it's affecting us is, is really important. But I think something cool about intuitive eating and kind of what we were talking about with a lot of the accounts that are, you know, showing the side of intuitive eating where it's okay to have sweets and desserts and things like that is that a big piece of intuitive eating is helping you end this cycle of trying diet after diet after diet. And there are so many people that may not have a history of disordered eating, but they definitely have, have been cycling through diets. And so I definitely want everyone listening to this episode to understand and know that intuitive eating can be for everyone. You don't just have to have a history of an eating disorder. Yeah. I definitely want to um, talk a little bit more about some of the harms of going on multiple diets or weight cycling, you know, particularly 
for PCOS because, you know, many people with PCOS, even if they weren't diagnosed in their teens, they maybe started to show signs of the condition in their teens, you know, and unlike a lot of other conditions out there, a lot of the the symptoms of PCOS are cosmetic and mm-hmm. they really can, you know, people can see these things that are, you know, maybe contributing to negative body image for you and all of that. Um, and so I do see a history of, you know, maybe even starting with mom taking them to Weight Watchers at 15 or 16. Um, totally. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the harms of weight cycling and maybe a little bit of a definition about what weight cycling actually is? Yeah. So weight cycling is just going through the cycle of losing weight and then gaining the weight back, which is really what we see with dieting. You know, the definition of dieting is eating in a way to try to lose weight. So what we see a lot of times with dieting is that almost everyone regains the weight that they lose on a diet. And many people actually gain back more weight than what they weighed before the diet. Um, Something crazy is that the biggest predictor of weight gain is actually a history of dieting. And I think that's really important for people to understand that if you are dieting in an effort to lose weight, it's probably not going to be effective. And it's much better for your overall health to just let your weight settle where it's meant to be, you know, when you're practicing health promoting behaviors. Uh, But some of the things that we see with weight cycling and research is worsening insulin resistance, increased inflammation, elevated blood pressure, depression, or self-esteem. And these are all things that are associated with PCOS anyway. So it's just kind of like pouring fuel on the fire a little bit. Yeah, I always uh, cite the Biggest Loser study where, yes, you know, they, <laughs> I think a lot of us got sucked into that show in the beginning. And it's, you know, so inspirational to see these people like, oh, what a difference. They're a whole new them or whatever. Um, and how much damage. Uh, those people did to their bodies when they were followed out years after appearing on the show. Um, you know, in particular, they had all gained the weight back plus more, but from a nutrition um, and functional medicine perspective, they killed their metabolisms. You know, yes. now they're they're the same weight that they were when they went on the show, but now they can only eat half as many calories without it affecting their weight. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think if we look at the biggest loser as a whole, it's so representative of our culture because I always think about at the beginning of the show or in the previews of how the contestants explained how much better their life would be if they lost weight or what it would mean for their health. And in the end, that's not what happened. And I think we see this a lot with our clients too. I see it a lot on social media. If you spend any time on the PCOS hashtags, there are so many accounts that are dedicated to like a whole new me. And I know, you know, this episode is coming right after 
New Year's when a lot of people are focused on new year, new me. And, you know, I think it's important to talk about the fact that the desire to lose weight um, isn't necessarily going to result in the outcomes that you think are going to come with that weight loss. Like you're, you're, it's not like losing weight is not going to fix your whole life. Exactly. And I think that I'm sure you've had these types of clients, but when I have had clients who really wanted to lose weight, their goals associated with that weight loss, they did not achieve those feelings or accomplish what they thought they were going to accomplish when they reached whatever their desired weight was. They were, they just continued to be unhappy. And I think that we really need to acknowledge too that number one, everyone has autonomy over their body and it's not wrong or bad to have the desire to lose weight. But I think it's also important to sit with why that is important to you. Um, When I do a discovery call with a client and they have a goal of weight loss, I always ask them, why is this important to you? And almost always the conversation ends in tears. And a lot of the reasons behind that desire to lose weight have actually nothing to do with weight. And so we need to peel back those layers and ask ourselves, how can I support myself right now in my body? You know, if I'm having orthopedic pain, should I work with a physical therapist? If I'm tired of my mom making comments to me, do I need to just set a boundary? If my doctor won't provide me care until I lose 20 pounds, then maybe I should find a new doctor. Um, and really shift our focus into taking care of yourself right now. Yeah, you brought up something that that came up recently. I know you're in the um, Dietitians Treating PCOS Patients Facebook group as well. Mm-hmm. And I saw another dietitian asking about, you know, accessing fertility care for a patient who didn't meet the clinic's BMI requirements. And you know, while a lot of private fertility clinics do set weight limits or BMI limits, there there are other options out there. Definitely. And I was going to give you a really great resource for that. I'm going to say her handle on Instagram is fat positive fertility. Yeah. Yeah. I, I follow her as well. Nicola. Yeah. She would be a really great resource for anyone struggling with that. But yeah, I think that when we look at the topic of weight, which I'm just bringing it up because it's a huge piece of intuitive eating is letting go of centering weight is the main focus. Uh, we, We need to look at all of these topics, accessibility and the ethics around providing healthcare as, as being part of that. Yeah. I think, you know, it kind of made me think of it when you were talking about you know, experiencing orthopedic pain and having to go to um, a physical therapist, it's like, well, is the fact that you're having difficulty doing, you know, X, Y, Z movement in whatever type of exercise class, you know, is that really on you or is that on the instructor for not providing alternatives that are more accessible for people to be able to perform? Exactly. Yes, 100%. 
Yeah. So there actually is, you know, we love to dive into the evidence here and there actually is (laughs) some evidence on benefits of intuitive eating when it comes to PCOS and some of those markers that we look at with PCOS, like insulin resistance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. There, there are over a hundred studies about intuitive eating and the health benefits and on the intuitive eating website, they actually, in one of their uh, menu items, if you scroll, they have an entire page of every single study of intuitive eating. It's really awesome. But um, intuitive eating is associated with lower triglycerides, um, better glucose control, lower blood pressure, less binge eating, less emotional eating. Um, and intuitive eating is also associated with higher self-esteem, better HDL cholesterol. That's like what we want to be higher, uh, better body satisfaction, better life satisfaction, and more connection to your body which I think is really important with PCOS. Most people with PCOS are completely disconnected from their body and they don't trust their body. So, so many things related to intuitive eating are especially beneficial for PCOS because most of the things that I listed are things that people with PCOS struggle with. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to let you know about a new program I'm starting on February 1st. If you're like most people, you probably spent January trying to follow one diet plan or another, whether you did a 30-day clean eating plan, keto, one of those online diets running commercials every five minutes this time of year, or just trying to avoid sugar or carbs. And if you're also like many people, those resolutions didn't quite last through the month. So maybe it's time to try something different. The PCOS Root Cause Roadmap is my proven and proprietary six-step method for PCOS success, and it's always open for enrollment. But if you enroll at any other time of the year, you are pretty much on your own as you're going through the course. I wanted to give you the opportunity to go through it with more support if you feel like you need that. So starting February 1st for four weeks, we'll be doing the course live. We will go through insulin resistance, inflammation, gut imbalances, and hormone imbalances together as a group with twice weekly open office hours with me via Zoom to get your questions answered and help you customize the recommendations in the course for yourself. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash RCR live that's the letters R-C-R-L-I-V-E, to sign up now. And if you're a current or former student in the course and you're looking to recommit, stay tuned for an email from me and a post in the Facebook group to let you know how to join in. For everyone else, head on over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash R-C-R live to sign up now. Back to the episode. Yeah, now I'm going to ask you something that I didn't send ahead. Okay. (laughs) Let's bombard you with this unexpected question. Um, I saw you got into kind of a little Twitter scuffle (laughs) last night with a doctor who said, but how can you tell if someone is managing their insulin resistance if they're not losing weight? 
And I mean, my head pretty much exploded when I saw that. So I can't even imagine like how you went off. I did not follow the story to the and I saw some of it last night. <laughs> I literally DM'd one of my friends and I was like, is this real life right now? Is this real life? And I'm like, what about labs? What about symptoms? What about, you know, does somebody get their period back? And, and I'm like, also, do you not there? We have research. We have research that walking can improve insulin resistance independent of weight changes and, and other things that people struggle with, with PCOS, like sleep issues and sleep apnea and improving stress and things like that. And it's, it's so unfortunate and really harmful that so much of medical care for PCOS is weight centric. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe it was a doctor saying, but how, how do you know you're managing it if they're not losing weight? It's like, how about actually run an insulin test yeah. or how about they are struggling with cravings less or they have more energy or their acanthosis nigricans is fading. Like there are so many ways to tell that insulin resistance is improving that have literally nothing to do with what the scale says or does not say. Exactly. It blows my mind. You should go and read some of the other, the other comments if you have time. Oh, I defi definitely will. I had to go to bed last night, but I, I saw some of it. This is why I need to stop using my phone late at night. <laughs> yeah, my cortisol gets too high um, on social media at night, but also I generally try to stay away from Twitter in general. Like, it's just, I don't know, it's much more trolly over there than Instagram tends to be for the most part. I get trolls on Instagram too, but... Twitter, like people are just out there looking for fights. They're picking they are. fights in the street, you know? They are. Mm -hmm. Another PCOS advocate had already engaged with him and kind of shared some on her Instagram. And I don't use Twitter that much, but I just couldn't stop myself from commenting. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, oh, hell no, I'm going in. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. I, after that, I posted a meme. I don't know if you watched The Real Housewives of New York, but Dorinda on the show, she did this thing where she said, she's starting like when she's <laughs> getting. And I, I was like, that's me right now. I'm I'm starting. But yeah. yeah, that that was actually the only Real Housewives I've ever watched. And I only <laughs> watched the first couple of seasons. I was still in New York at the time. So it was sort of required watching. <laughs> Yeah, it took on a deeper meaning because you live there. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry for the little little segue, but I felt it important to to address because it's just so ridiculous from a dietitian's perspective to have a doctor say, "Well, how can you tell?" Yeah. Well, but I think it illustrates a lot of the struggles that our clients have with medical care because. In general, that is the experience of the majority of my clients is, you know, when they go into the doctor's office, weight is the primary and sometimes the only metric that is being measured. Yeah, I know you get as riled up about this as I do, but when, a, you know, a doctor meets with you for five minutes and tells you to lay off the soda and the fast food, or they tell you, 
just eat less and move more without actually asking you if you're eating soda or or drink you know <laughs> drinking soda, eating fast food or exercising or what you're eating like they're just kind of making this blanket statement like you must be doing something wrong. Exactly. Um, mhm. And I see it in the dietitian Facebook groups too, which is just, it's something to be particularly ashamed about as a professional when I see colleagues, you know, talking about, well, this person isn't losing weight and, you know, this is what they're doing and, you know, it's all of the things. And the responses, the majority of the responses are, well, she must be lying or, Ex- you, yes, you know. yes. It's like, how about we start with, believing our patients and our clients as step number one, like it's just, you know, getting angry, (laughs) angry thinking about it. It's truly enraging. And I think, you know, if we think back to any time where you haven't been believed about something, even if it's outside of healthcare, I mean, it, it, it really damages the trust in professionals, it creates a hostile environment. And yeah, I completely agree. And I think that this is where dietitians can really play an important role because the reality is a doctor doesn't have the time and honestly, the training to have that type of conversation of, okay, tell me what you're doing. Like, what do you typically eat? How do you move your body? How's your stress? How are you sleeping? I mean, it's really hard to have that type of conversation in a 10 minute visit. And that's really where referring to um, a dietitian to help with those things can be beneficial. You know, I think another, another point, and, you know, doctors absolutely should be referring to dietitians at that point when, you know, someone could benefit from more nutrition education as it relates to their condition. Um, I see also equally problematic is when you've got this very white, very wealthy doctor uh, who is a fan of, you know, the keto diet or whatever. They're eating, you know, hand massaged cows and home churned butter. And they think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And they're just telling everybody, you know, hey, this worked for me. It's like, well, first of all, great. You're a man. Um, you have endless resources when it comes to food budget. Like I shudder to think at the state of your colon right now, but like, you know, I just think there's, you know, very little understanding of how that translates to a real life person with real life budget and real life time constraints and preferences. And, you know, it's very fault based, you know, it's like, well, why are you just not doing it? Exactly. And it honestly, <laughs> this is another thing that just makes me feel so ragey. But yeah, I mean, the first question that we should be asking our clients is, you know, what is your goal? What are some obstacles that are standing in the way of like meeting that goal and really work on meeting our clients and our patients where they're at? And that's going to look different for everyone. And it's not about us and what we think and the things that have worked for us. It's about the people that we're serving and what they feel like will help them the most. And I think something really unfortunate about medical care, and even, you know, I see this a lot with dietitians, is that we kind of remove that autonomy 
from the people we're working with. And I see a lot of people like talking at their clients and patients instead of kind of helping them figure out which path they want to take. Yeah, I go back and forth on this in my own head about can you teach empathy to someone who's not naturally empathetic? And I don't know, sometimes, sometimes like maybe it's possible. Other times I'm like, yeah, no, you can't, you can't, you just can't teach someone to care about someone else if that's not their natural way. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of, you know, personal experiences or what you've been exposed to can give you some insight to that as well. Is it okay if I tell you a client story? Yeah, go go for it. I mean, you, you're going to be HIPAA compliant and not use. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I just one time when I had a brick and mortar practice, I had a client who did not have transportation, and she had to take the bus to my office. And public transportation in Charlotte is horrible. So her bus trip to just come see me was two hours, and she had to walk two miles from the bus stop. Um, And she was working really long hours and she was spending a lot of time on the bus and she had an orthopedic issue that couldn't be resolved because she had a job where she was standing on her feet and she had to walk everywhere from these bus stops. And even just going to the grocery store, this was really before like grocery delivery was really popular. Even going to the grocery store was an obstacle for her. And, you know, the way that I worked with that client was entirely different than how I would work with another client who maybe had an office job or had their own transportation. But what was just so disappointing is that her doctor was like pushing her to do keto, telling her that she needed to eliminate X, Y, and Z foods. And I'm like, you're not even addressing the real problems that this person is facing. And I, it just, I think it illustrates a lot of problems in our healthcare system and those trickle down to our clients with PCOS. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, especially looking at, you know, access to things like private dietitians, privately owned dietitians, but also, you know, fertility options are also limited when you don't have funds to even pursue diagnosis. I had someone in my course just last week saying, oh, my, my doctors finally agreed to do the transvaginal ultrasound to, you know, check up and see, you know, how many follicles I have. Um, and then she found out her insurance, even with the copay for her insurance, it was going to be like $450. And so she had to cancel it. And it's, you know, it's, it's really upsetting when like, you know, this should, I mean, obviously like our healthcare system is broken, but there's only so much we can, we can do. And it's just, yeah, it's just really sad. Um, yeah, and so yeah sad. We, we need to be looking at those systemic issues. Like why, why is transportation so difficult in Charlotte, in Charlotte, you know, um, why doesn't her job pay well enough for her to, you know, own a car? Things like that, that are just, they have, you know, those social determinants of health have such a big impact. And yet 
the discussion is always around, well, well, you're not doing it right or you're not putting in the work. Exactly. And we need to be looking at health in a holistic way and not watering it down and blaming our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good transition to (laughs) talk about what does health at every size mean and what does it mean to be aligned with health at every size? Well, health at every size is an approach to health that really promotes people of all body sizes and ethnicities and races and ages and genders and sexual orientation. It really promotes everyone finding compassionate ways to take care of themselves. It's deeply rooted in social justice, just like we were talking about Um, some of those systemic issues, and really acknowledging that health is not about or defined by a number on the scale. And I think that when we look at the topic of weight in and of itself, I think dietitians especially are more accepting that, okay, somebody could be at a higher weight and they could still be healthy or BMI is not an indicator of health, but there's always that dot, dot, dot as long as they're healthy, you know, and I I look at Hayes as kind of removing that dot, 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 and really recognizing that each individual person gets to define what a healthful life means to them. And I think that definition really goes beyond just physical health and even just PCOS symptoms. Um, And it really includes mental health, spiritual health, and emotional health as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the origins of health at every size? Because I think that's something else that's, you know, kind of gets lost a little bit in translation on social media. Yeah. So something really interesting is that health at every size and body positivity really started as a Black liberation movement. Um, There are some really great resources online if somebody wants to do a deep dive into the history. Unfortunately, what's happened over time is that it's really been co-opted by a lot of thin white women, almost kind of reassuring themselves that they're not fat. And that's that's really not what this is about. Yeah, I think we've all seen those images online with someone kind of bent over at the waist a little bit and their their stomachs pooching out a little bit. It's like, well, that's what what stomachs do, you know? Um, right. Exactly. Or somebody saying, you know, this is like you're not fat, that's your uterus sticking out, which number one, it's not. But number two, you know, somebody that is living life at a higher weight what type of message do you think that sends to them, you know, when their stomach is a lot larger than that? I think that the messaging has gotten completely distorted. Ooh, while we're talking about that, that reminds me about something you talk about a lot too, Um, you know, the messaging and the message it conveys when you're complimenting someone on weight loss or on their body. Why is that problematic? It's problematic in a couple of ways. Number one, it just shows that person, hey, 
I'm paying attention to how you look and your physical appearance. And it's so important to me that this is one of the first things I'm bringing up to you. And then another thing is it's essentially telling someone that they look better when they are at a lower weight. And it's just reinforcing the idea that it's not good to be at a higher weight and we need to be focused on losing weight. And I even see some of this messaging in the PCOS space where maybe someone's saying like, weight isn't the end all be all, or we really shouldn't be focused on weight, but then they're celebrating when people are losing weight with PCOS. And it does send the message that, okay, try not to be focused on weight, but this is really what we're going for. And it's really confusing. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I would never comment on someone's body. I've learned learned my lesson there and had my own body commented on by far too many nosy relatives. But, you know, it really, again, a lot of the nuance is lost when you're talking to the public as opposed to, you know, working with someone individually and where they're at and what the what their goals are. It's definitely, it's complicated. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely really complicated. And I know from my own personal experience over the past year, I have had a lot of physical struggles. I had COVID, long COVID, breathing problems. I had a surgery with skin complications where it was uncomfortable for me to wear pants afterwards. And I went from being really physically active to you know, I laid on the couch and in my bed for probably three months and my body has changed a lot. And it's been a really big struggle to be able to be active again. You know, I've gone through a period of physical inactivity. And anyway, the point of my story is I definitely have gone up many clothing sizes. I am aware that I look different and it gives me anxiety being around other people because I know that they're judging me and I have had people say things to me and then have had people compliment, you know, when they see me a second time and they say that I've lost weight and weight is not a focus for me at all. But, you know, I think it, it, it goes back to the harms of being so weight centric of does somebody have anxiety, even going into a social situation because they're, they're worried about what somebody's going to say about their body. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's important to talk about the fact, too, that weight loss isn't necessarily intentional. Um, So when you're commenting on the fact that you've noticed that someone's lost weight, like, you really don't know why that happened. You know, are they under a period of undue stress? Are they in an active eating disorder? Are they, you know, sick or something, you know, some other struggle that's affecting their weight. And it, it really hits awkward when someone compliments you and you're like, well, thanks. I've been stressed out of my mind or, you know, you know, as someone who was a dancer in my former life, I can state for a fact that at my smallest was absolutely my most unhappy you know, with my body and with my life, you know, and it's, it's just, there's not that connection between smaller equals better or happier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or a better life or feeling more fulfilled. Yeah. We just, we don't know what's going on underneath the surface, you know, when it comes to someone's weight and 
I would really encourage anyone listening when you're with your friends and family to really shift the conversation away from weight and body in general. There are just so many other things that we could talk about that this doesn't even need to be part of the conversation. Yeah. We, I mean, I like to think I'm so much more than (laughs) just my body. I tend to tend to fall into the other camp where I feel like sometimes people think I'm just a brain. And I'm like, no, I've I've got a body too. Um, but you know, our who you are as a person isn't your body, you know, and especially from a feminist perspective, it's like we're so much more than our bodies. Yeah, exactly. And those words stay with people. They really do. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit, um, since you just mentioned it, about COVID-19 weight gain. And, you know, we all remember the memes that came out like, oh, I gained the COVID-19. You know, and my my response to that is like, if that's all you you got from this past year and a half, then consider yourself lucky. You know, it's like, like you're still alive. Um, you know, if you've come through all that we've been through relatively unscathed, except maybe some of your pants are tighter than they used to be, or, you know, I don't know, I'm never going back to real pants again. I'm never wearing, but like anything with <laughs> Me buttons, either. just donating anything that has buttons, you know, so it's, it's, it's the least of our, our worries, um, over the, what we've been through, you know? Yes. I'm we- and I'm wearing sweatpants right now. Well, yeah, and I think that we really need to normalize bodies changing and food can be a source of comfort. So when we're in a really stressful time, I mean, think back to the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't know what was going on. Everything was shut down. We didn't know when this was going to end or when we were going to get a vaccine or anything. And so food can be a source of comfort and you know, in certain situations, it can definitely be an appropriate source of comfort. Um, and, you know, if we're not outside and moving our bodies, it, it makes sense that our bodies changed. And, you know, I think that we, we really need to normalize situations like that. Yeah. I am not a baker or a dessert maker in normal times, but I found myself anytime I would have to go to the grocery store, I had to buy more vanilla because I was like <laughs> making all of these desserts while I was home. And, you know, we were kind of taking our joy where we could during those moments. And, you know, my coffee consumption went through the roof. Like, <laughs> you know, it was probably like summer of 2020 when I was like, all right, I got to dial this back down to a reasonable amount because it just made me happy. It was like, coffee makes me happy, you know? <laughs> yeah. I had the same experience. We, right before the pandemic, we had gone to Napa and we had joined two wine clubs for more like special occasion wines that you can't get at the grocery store. And we were having them delivered and we were like, we don't know if the world is ending. Like we should enjoy some of these. And there was definitely a period of time where we drank way too much wine. And, you know, that was the season and it's okay. And I, I completely agree with you out of everything that's happened throughout this pandemic if you're wearing a bigger, a bigger clothing size, then, you know, that should be the least of your worries. Yeah. It's funny. Like every Tuesday becomes a special occasion when you, it's like, Oh, let's, let's, you know, (laughs) take that joy where you find it, you know, definitely. 
Um, another thing that you mentioned was this whole idea of boundaries. You know, talking about boundaries around talking around about weight with, you know, your family members, perhaps, or maybe even a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe a lot of people don't realize you actually can set boundaries with a doctor and tell them what you're willing to talk about and willing not willing to talk about. Yeah, and I think this can feel a little uncomfortable because we because of the way we view our relationships with our doctors, but letting them know it makes me feel uncomfortable when we talk about my weight, or I would like to decline being weighed unless it's medically necessary or asking, you know, what type of medical advice would you give to someone if they're in a smaller body Um, and really open up these conversations. And, you know, if you're most of the time, I feel like our doctors they're just so busy and they're kind of dealing with a broken system that is really not their fault. Sometimes opening up these conversations can be really helpful and insightful for them. But if you have a doctor that won't respect your boundary, you know, your doctor works for you. So you can try to switch. I know that's really difficult, but. Yes. I think, you know, back to the idea that the system is broken and, you know, it doesn't always work in our favor. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that if you do get weighed at your doctor's office and your BMI is above the threshold, it sort of triggers uh, whatever protocol they have in their system. And insurance, uh, depending on what insurance you have, might actually require the doctor to counsel you on weight loss based on that BMI. And so I think a lot of times when the doctors are rushing in and out of the room and it's like, oh, BMI 35, got to counsel on weight loss. Hey, um, move more and, you know, uh, eat less. And they're like, okay, done. I can check that off the protocol now and submit it to insurance. And they're not going to come after my medical license. Exactly. And how much more helpful would it be if in some sort of check-in process or even like pre-appointment questionnaire, they asked you about like, how many hours are you sleeping? Are you eating fruits and vegetables? How often are you moving your body? When I had my last physical, they asked some vague questions like that, but they truly were so vague that I was just like, how are you even getting information about this? They didn't even ask me the date of my last period, which I think was an oversight because they usually do. But we should really be focusing on behaviors instead. Um, But you're right. The way that the healthcare system is set up right now, um, sometimes doctors are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. So, you know, I think we've covered a lot of different angles. um, (laughs) We have. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, I do want to ask you what would be one thing that you want people struggling with PCOS to take away from this episode? I would like for everyone with PCOS to remember that you can honor your physical health and be mindful of nutrition without sacrificing your relationship with food and your body. I think so many people feel like if they want to have a peaceful relationship with food and their body, then that means health is going out the window. And there's definitely a lot of ways that you can combine those two areas. 
Yeah, so um, tell the audience a little bit more about where they can find you um, and what you offer. And I will link to, I know you have a new freebie, the workbook, so I will be linking to that in the show notes so people can grab that. Awesome. Yeah. If you grab that freebie, it's an intuitive eating workbook for PCOS. That'll put you on my email list. Um, My website is PCOSfoodfreedom.com and I'm really active on Instagram. I post every day. I'm in stories every day. So that's an awesome place to connect with me as well. Um, I offer group nutrition coaching for PCOS. So if someone is interested in diving into nutrition in an environment that really promotes a healthy relationship with food in your body. Um, my group coaching program would be a really great fit for you. Awesome. Thank you. And you're PCOS.nutritionist on Instagram, correct? Yes. Yes. That I probably should have mentioned my handle, but yes, that's it. Yeah. I was, I was actually wondering if you're planning on changing that since all your, everything else is PCOS food freedom now. Yeah, I just very recently went through a rebrand, so I'm trying to decide, consolidate everything. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.